0: I was asked to do a one-off uh, Sunday school. Uh, Craig and Ryan were out of town for the week, so happy to, happy to help out a little bit. Um, so uh, let's start with Scripture. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And he is like a tree planted by streams of water that brings forth fruit in its season. Its leaf also does not wither, and in everything he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous." but the way of the wicked will perish. So why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords away from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. Yahweh holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. And terrify them with his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel." And now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Uh, Thank You that... It always accomplishes what you send it forth to do. Um, You say in your word that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word will remain forever. So I ask, Father, that you would help us uh, to understand your word better, that you would help me to be clear um, in what I speak about today, and that ultimately this would help us all uh, to better understand what you've done for us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, I suppose the the first question we should ask is why are we looking at Psalms 1 and 2 today? Um, uh, what's interesting is that um, I think in the 21st century and probably in the 20th century, poetry has kind of fallen off the radar in terms of something that we look at. Um, two of my favorite English authors are C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. R. Tolkien, and they actually, um, the first things that they really did together, they were both professors at a college in um, in England, they would get together on Thursday evenings and read each other poetry that they'd written, and they would critique each other's poetry and say, oh, I like this part, you should change this part. Um, some of that poetry found its way into the Lord of the Rings and the Chronicles of Narnia. But I would render a guess, like, I I don't sit at home reading books of poetry, really. Um, What's interesting, though, is that the best-selling book in history, the Bible, contains within it a book of poetry, which is referred to all the time by the New Testament authors um, to explain um, theology, to explain God, to explain the Messiah and Christ. And it's interesting that there is a translation, an old, early, early translation of the book of Acts, in Acts 13, where the Apostle Paul says, as it says in the first Psalm, and then he quotes what we now have in our ESVs, or whatever translation you have, as Psalm 2. So that's interesting. At some point, we know that the early church fathers, many of them considered Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 a single psalm, one part of a whole. Um, now, there are reasons for this, and we'll uh, we'll nerd out for a couple minutes to see why they might have thought this. Um, the Talmud, which is a very, very, very old Hebrew uh, commentary on Scripture, said that the first psalm begins and ends with blessing. It begins and ends with blessing. And if we look at Psalm 1-2... Um, It says, uh, obviously, blessed is the man that walks not. And at the end it says, blessed are all, at the end of uh, chapter 2, blessed are all who take refuge in him. So there's blessing. Um, There's something to look at uh, regarding the titles of poetry. You'll notice that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 don't have a title But all the other psalms um, in Book 1 of the Psalter, so that would be 1 through 42, I believe, all have a title. It's either um, the title is Of David, for example, Psalm 34, Of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, or Psalm 30, uh, A Psalm of David, A Song at the Dedication of the Temple. Interestingly, though, Psalms 1 and Psalm 2 do not have a title. Uh, We have other similarities here. At the end of chapter 1, it says, the way of the wicked will perish. And at the end of chapter 2, we see, uh, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Um, So we see some similarities there. I really like this one. Uh, In Psalm 1 and 2, it says that he meditates on God's law day and night and that Hebrew word is yeche it's uh it means to mutter under your breath to like mumble to yourself which may seem funny to us you know it's interesting but what what it's saying is that the blessed person is reciting scripture reciting the the Lord's law to himself or herself you know under their breath laying in bed when they wake up in the morning they are meditating on God's law the same word, however, is used also at the very beginning of chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? That word plot is the same word. They're muttering under their breath. They're mumbling to themselves, plotting against God. So there's another example of this this, uh, this comparison between the, the blessed and the wicked. Uh, finally, um, they both have the same goal in mind, right? It's explaining the way of blessing, how to be blessed. I think, um, did I name the title of this? Yes, I did, How to Be Blessed. Um, so as you can see, a lot of people have viewed this over the past two or 3,000 years as at least being very closely linked. I think that's the takeaway, is that uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, um, whoever put this book together purposefully made sure that Psalms 1 and Psalms 2 were placed where they are, and they did it for a reason. So, what is that reason? Uh, finally, there's a well known commentator who says that these two Psalms, quote, act as doorkeepers for all who enter the Psalms, requiring us to take refuge in the Lord from the moment we enter the Psalter. So what I want to do today, this morning, briefly, is we're, we're going to walk through this doorway, right? This doorway of the Psalter, and we're going to ask, how can we be blessed? Okay, now if if that maybe like makes you prick up your ears because you've heard similar questions asked in other churches that you may have attended, um, I, I, I guess that's intentional. I've been to churches, I've attended churches where... This question is frequently asked, and people want to know, how can I be blessed? Uh, And blessing in that context takes on a bunch of different meanings based on who you ask. I want to be blessed financially. I want to be blessed with good health. Um, I want to know the Lord better. Fill in the blank, right? We all want to be blessed. And I think that's natural. I think it's natural to want to have God's favor on our lives. Um, and the reason we're talking about this this morning is that Psalm 1 and 2 will tell us how to be blessed. It will give you the formula. So let's look at it together. On your notes, you see, I've got uh, chapters 1, verses 1 through 3, and I've entitled it The Blessed Man. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates, he mutters, he mumbles it to himself, day and night. He is like a tree, planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. This is a picture, a sketch, if you will, of what the blessed life looks like. This is what the blessed person does in order to be blessed. He does not, notice it's stated negatively here, doesn't walk, stand, or sit with the wicked, with those who mock God. Now, I've heard from friends and from various people whom I've met that say that this is a picture that really... You know, you don't want to walk with the wicked. You can't really help that, though. You know, you go to work, you're around them. You don't want to stand in their way, for sure, because then you're stopping and you're spending more time with them in their way. And you definitely don't want to sit with the scoffers, because that means you're staying with them. Uh, That means you've decided to sort of camp out here and really take in this relationship with The wicked. Now, I think that definitely there is some imagery here in that there is this path that we move down in life and that we are uh, at danger. There is a reality that we are surrounded by the wicked and sinners and scoffers and that we are not to associate with them in their way or to sit with them in their presence. But notice that what it is not saying here is that it's okay. You have to walk with them. You really shouldn't sit with them. Really, you don't want to uh, sit with them. Sorry, you don't want to stand with them. It's, but there's varying degrees. There are grades to how we interact with them. That's not what it's saying. Uh, I mean, if you look at the text, it very plainly says that the blessed man does not walk does not stand and does not sit with the wicked. We're going to circle back around to this because I think in all of our lives we find ourselves at times walking, sitting, standing, and at various points it may be varying degrees, but we're going to have to come back to this and ask, how can this be? But it's plainly set forth here in Scripture, the blessed man does not do these things. Rather, Stated positively, he's like a tree. The man who avoids the wicked, the person who does not stand with the sinners or sit with the scoffers, is like a tree. There's this um, agricultural language. Um, The nation of Israel and those nations at that time were agrarian. Um, So they would know about fruit trees and olive trees and vines. And this is a picture of a tree that's planted by the streams of water, yielding its fruit in its season. It doesn't wither, and in all that this person does, in all that he does, he prospers. Um, Now because this is a Sunday school, we we can jump around a little bit. Um, In Genesis 39.23, almost the exact same language is used for Joseph. Joseph has been falsely accused, Uh, he's been sold into slavery by his brothers, Uh, he's been falsely accused of rape, and he has been falsely imprisoned now for years. And it says that, while Joseph is in prison, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. He put Joseph in charge of some of the prisoners in the prison, because The Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it to prosper. I can't prove this, but I'm pretty sure that the psalmist has this in mind when he's writing Psalms 1. Uh, Now, we can't push it too far, right? Joseph was divinely ordained uh, to save the line of the Messiah. But we see here, I believe, we can, we can deduce that the psalmist is working with a spiritual definition of blessing. Right? Uh, Joseph, at this point, is not undergoing, um, he's not getting a raise at work. Um, you know, he doesn't have great health, probably. I'm sure he's malnourished. Uh, he didn't just get a new car. Um, but at the same time, he's prospering and he's blessed in everything he does because he has remained true to the Lord. So uh, the, the blessing here that we're talking about is spiritual. And I think we should be careful when someone tells us, if you, we may have heard people use this this chapter as an example, if you just do these things, you will be blessed by, you know, fill in the blank. Whatever you want, it's yours. The parking lot, the parking spot that's closest to the grocery store, I heard... A really famous pastor say that once. Um, you know he was like, I'm a child of the king, so I need that parking spot, and I claim it in Jesus' name. Okay, um, This is talking about we will be spiritually spiritually blessed. We will have God's favor in our lives if we do not do these things associating, walking, sitting, standing with the wicked. And if we meditate on the law of the Lord, day and night, don't do this. Instead, do this. There's two ways. You don't associate with the wicked, and you do actively meditate on God's law day and night. Now that is a picture of the blessed man. Um, Let's move on to the wicked man. Uh, We've got verses 4 through 6. Uh, he circles back around and he uses agricultural language again. Uh, instead of being like this uh, tree planted by the waters, yielding fruit in its season, he's like chaff that the wind drives away. Now, I'm not an expert on uh, on farming or anything like that. We just bought like these little strawberry plants and left them outside, and the kids water them. I don't even water them. Um, So I literally know nothing about farming. But uh, my understanding is that in ancient Israel and in this Near Eastern culture, as they would grow grain, uh, when it was time to harvest it, they would cut the grain, and they would go up into a hilltop or someplace that was windy, had a breeze, and you would throw it up in the air, and as it's being thrown up, the wind would catch it, and it would take this dried up husk that's around the wheat, the chaff, and blow it away the wheat would fall down and you've got edible food here. Okay? This is the picture being used in Scripture of the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. They will be separated from what's good and driven away. Uh, then we see that the psalmist has in mind judgment. Uh, the, the psalm Five affirms for us that the writer of this psalm believes that a judgment is coming. And in that judgment, it says the wicked will not stand. Uh, they will not be acquitted by God at the judgment, at the final judgment. And they will not be in, it's interesting, um, that the, they, they will not be associated with the righteous, with the congregation of the righteous uh, at the final judgment. Because the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Uh, this is a pretty stark contrast. right? We see that there is a way of blessing and that there is a way that the wicked walk that leads to destruction and judgment. I want to be on the way of the blessed, of the blessed man. I'm sure that that sounds good. We don't want to be destroyed by God. Again, though, we have to ask, how can this be? And I think it's very helpful and I think it's necessary that we keep reading because we've seen this sort of zoomed up sketch of what the blessed person looks like compared to the wicked person. Now in Psalms 2, suddenly it's going to zoom out to this worldwide cosmic level and it's going to ask the same question what does the what what do the wicked look like on this grand scale? And it goes on, why do the nations rage? No longer the individual, but the nations themselves raging against God. And the peoples plot, mutter under their breath in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. I think it's helpful to know that uh, or to think about, this this book, the Psalms, most of them are written by King David. And it was only fifty, sixty years before that Saul had become king. And he had become king because prior to Saul, there was no king in Israel. In fact, in Judges it says there was no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And at some point, the people of Israel came to Samuel, the prophet, and said, We want a king. We want our own king. And in First Samuel 8, I'll just turn there really quick. First Samuel 8, 4-8. through For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So interestingly, shortly before the Psalms began to be written and compiled, Israel themselves had done something very, very similar. They've said, we don't want to serve God. Uh, We want to be free and we want someone else to tell us what to do. uh, Because he tells us things that we don't like. He says the things we do are not right. And we want to be like everybody else, all the nations, and have our own king. And Samuel is distraught. And God tells him, don't worry about it because they're not rejecting you. They've really just rejected me. They do not want me to be king over them. Even though I saved them in Egypt, even though I brought them out, even though I'm the one who's given them this land, they don't want me. And I think it's helpful to think about today. I mean, do we see this? Do we see kings and rulers saying that they don't want to serve God? Maybe. They may not be so explicit. They may just say that they don't believe in God, right? Um, But it's interesting that in the past 150 years really was when just this virulent form of um, atheism came about. Uh, it was Nietzsche, this, this German philosopher, who said, God is dead. And because God is dead, that means we have a world without anyone to tell us what to do. And so we need to make up rules to help us get through this this new reality, that there's nothing out there. It's just us. So you need to be a superman, and just get over it, and stop whining about the situation, and make yourself who you want to be. Hitler loved Nietzsche. Um, And the point is, they would say, okay, God is dead, and we know this, but there are still these rules around, like the Ten Commandments. Um, There's still this conscience inside us that tells us that we're doing things wrong, and that's just a leftover from these old superstitions that we had to have. So let's destroy all morality so we can build a new world. That in part is what's happening today. Um, Society needs to be deconstructed. We need to get rid of all these old superstitious notions about right and wrong. We need to destroy it so that we can create something new. That is what is happening here. The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let's burst their bonds apart and cast their cords away from us, so that we can do whatever it is we want to do. Before we move on here, uh, I think I'm probably going to stop and, and take a couple questions, if there are any. Um, it says they take counsel together against the Lord, That capital those capital letters mean it's the divine name for God, and against his anointed, uh, in the Hebrew word here for anointed is Meshiach, the Messiah. They're taking counsel against Yahweh and his Messiah. Um, I suppose I should probably pause here before I just keep going. To ask, are there any questions? Are there any observations? Any anything at all? All right. That just means I've been really, really clear. So that's good. Um, What then is God's response? Is God worried about this? Is God quaking with fear? Is he hoping that he can convince us not to be like this? I, verse 4 tells us that God laughs at them. He thinks it's hilarious. I mean, it's, it's pretty shocking. God just thinks this is funny. He mocks them. He derides them. And then he speaks to them in his wrath, and he terrifies them with his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, this passage right here that we just read is used extensively in the New Testament by the apostles as evidence, or they they point to this and say, this is a direct um, allusion to the Messiah, to Jesus himself. Uh, there are several reasons for this and one because they're inspired. The other is that it talks about the Lord and his anointed, his messiah. in fact, um, in acts thirteen in acts thirteen this is quoted by Paul in a sermon thirteen twenty eight he's preaching in antioch and he says and though they found him in him no guilt worthy of death talking about jesus they asked pilate to have him executed and when they had carried out all that was written of him they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb but god raised him from the dead and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from galilee to jerusalem who were now his witnesses to the people and we bring you the good news That what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Paul looks at this and says, This is what God says to Jesus when He raises Him from the dead and seats Him on Zion. Jesus goes on, uh, the Messiah, whoever is speaking here, we, we know that it's the Messiah, says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is what God has promised to Christ. And in Revelation 2, 26, I'm sure you've read this before, Jesus applies the exact same promise to those who believe. The one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. The promise of Psalms 2 that God gives to the Messiah, this declaration that all authority over the nations has been given to him, is then promised to you and I by Christ in Revelation. It's pretty awesome, it's exciting. But now I think we're coming to the end of the handout. And I've got plenty of time left, which is good. And we we ask the question again, okay, so how can we be blessed? How can we be blessed? I think that we can ask the question, how can the wicked be blessed? Uh, some pretty strong terminology, language, has been used when speaking about the wicked. They'll be blown away like chaff. They won't stand in the judgment. Because they mock God, God laughs at them and derides them. Is there any hope, you would ask, rightly I think, that the wicked can be blessed? Well, we keep reading. And here God addresses the wicked kings and rulers. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. Uh, this is a, uh, an example of what you would do to a king is you would kiss him on the cheek. You would show that he was superior to you. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. We see here that the wicked can be blessed. God offers an invitation to them and says, you have been muttering under your breath about me. You've tried to throw off my rule. You've mocked me and the king that I put on Zion. So come to me and take refuge in me and you will be blessed. It's, it's shocking, really. That the same God who is mocking and deriding these wicked people is offering them blessing, uh, is offering them beatitude if they just come to him to find refuge. But most of us, I think, um, here at least, some of us are in a different camp where we don't openly deride God. Uh, we try not to walk in the way of the wicked. We try not to laugh at their jokes. Um, we, Right? I think that we would all say that our desire is to be blessed and to love God. But if we circle back around to the beginning of Psalms 1, we have to ask ourselves, but do we really do these things? Um do we meditate on His law day and night? I don't. Do we completely avoid the ways of the wicked? Sitting with them, standing with them? Probably not. And do you or I feel guilty about it? I know I do sometimes. Have you ever fallen into this uh, this, this cycle, if you will, of... I don't know, you're struggling with sin, you are feeling depressed, you are feeling discouraged, maybe you doubt, um, maybe you haven't read your Bible, and you begin to feel guilty, and you think, well, maybe, what have I not been doing right? I don't know, maybe this is just me. Have I not been reading my Bible enough? Is that the problem? Have I not been praying enough? Um, I think it's a valid question. And then maybe we think, well, maybe if I just fix that, then I will be blessed. And this problem will go away. But that's not what it says here in Psalms 1, 1 through 2. It doesn't say if you do a little better. Um, It says do it perfectly. Perfectly. Right, this is the problem. So, how then can we be blessed? How can the Christian be blessed? Is the question. And I think I, I, the way to look at this is to ask the question, who can be blessed? Who has done this perfectly? Who has followed the laws of God perfectly? Perfectly. The only answer we're given in the entirety of Scripture is that Christ has done it perfectly. That is the answer to the question. Luke 2 tells us that Jesus was fully submissive and obedient to his parents. Now, if you still live at home with your parents, that's a tall order. Because I remember when I lived at home with my parents, that was a tall order and I couldn't couldn't live up to it. It just wasn't possible. As much as I wanted to sometimes. But Jesus was fully submissive and obedient to his parents. Uh, in John eight twenty nine, Jesus says, He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Always. No equivocation. Always. Can I say that? No. Sadly, I cannot. Do we want to say that? Yes. But can we say that we always do the things that are pleasing to God? No. Jesus prayed perfectly. Mark 1 tells us, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. This would happen all the time. All the time. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm not waking up, you know, like super, super early and then trying to find a desolate place to pray. Um, But Christ did. And then Luke 22 tells us, and when the time of his death drew near, Jesus said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. So even when faced by a horrible death for something he did not do, Jesus still submitted his will to the Father. This is a picture of someone who is truly blessed. And why is he truly blessed? Because he does everything right. And he does not do the things he is not supposed to do. So who is the blessed man? Is it you? It's not me. It's Jesus. Jesus is the blessed man of Psalms 1. Now, you may be asking, as I asked myself when I first heard that, okay, prove it to me. Prove it to me. Okay, I'll see if I can do that. I've got a few minutes. Is Jesus the blessed man? Has he done everything perfectly? And are we blessed as well by taking refuge in him? That is the question. Is Jesus the blessed man of Psalms 1? And are we just like the wicked in that we also take refuge in Christ? Let's start at Genesis 1. You always got to start at Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God placed our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden. And he told them they had to do things. He said, don't do this. Instead, do this. He said, you are not to touch and eat that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you are supposed to rule over creation and to keep this garden and to be fruitful and multiply. And what, does, what do Adam and Eve do? Well, they, they don't do what they're supposed to do. They don't guard the garden. They let the serpent come in. And the serpent deceives them and then they do what they're not supposed to do. They eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and are cast out of of the garden. The Apostle Paul looks back to this in Galatians 3. And he's telling us that we are incapable of doing the good that we are supposed to do. And we're incapable of not doing the wrong that we're not supposed to do. But he's talking to people that still think they can do it and are trying really hard and attempting to do these ceremonies and these rituals and these things to be blessed, to get God's favor. And in Galatians 3.10, Paul looks back to Deuteronomy and says, For all, who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. That's the standard. Perfection. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does the law shall live by it. If you want to, if I want to, be perfect by keeping rules and doing things, it better be perfect. And we know that it is not. But then, as we mentioned before, Jesus comes to us and what happens when Jesus comes? If we go to Hebrews you don't have to turn there Hebrews 10:5 through seven. What does Jesus say when he comes into the world? When Christ came into the world, he said, "Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure." Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Jesus comes to earth and says, I'm here to do the work. I am here to do your will, O God. That is why he came. And then in John 17:4, in the high priestly prayer, Jesus says, I glorified you, God, on earth. Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, I did it. And now I'm going to the cross. And so if we go back to Galatians, Paul keeps going. We, we just read how he says, if you rely on the works of the law, you're under a curse. For the one who does it shall live by it. He goes on in the next verse and says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, "Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. And in Romans 5, he says, Therefore, Just as one trespass, one sin, led to condemnation for all men, the sin of Adam, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, Christ, the many will be made righteous. By the one man's obedience, you are made righteous. Romans 3, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded, obviously. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by, law, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. It is not doing the works, meditating day and night, not walking with the wicked, that justifies us before God. It is faith in the one who did those works. It is faith in Christ. And so 2 Corinthians 5, to wrap it up, Second Corinthians 5:20 20 through21, We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Take refuge in the Son. For our sake, He, God, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ has done the works of the law perfectly. So not only does he die for the sins that we have committed, for the sin that Adam committed, but he has also lived and done the works positively that you and I cannot do, fail to do every day. This is why Jesus when we look at the Psalter from the vantage point of Christ having come and revealed himself to us and the mystery of his will, that we can say, Amen, in truth the blessed man is Jesus Christ, and we also must take refuge in him, just like the wicked. Why? Well, because we are wicked. We have not lived according to the law. We have not kept it. We have sinned. And we continue to sin. And so at this point in Paul's letters, he always says this. He stops and he's like, well, okay, this sounds really good. This sounds too good to be true. And you're going to say to me, well, if that's the case, then I'm just going to keep on sinning. So that grace can abound. I was a sinner before. I didn't do anything to gain salvation, so I'm just going to keep sinning. And Jesus is just going to keep saving me, right? And of course, Paul says, God forbid. Or Peter would say, Do you not know? Do you understand what has happened here? You weren't saved by the blood of an animal, by the blood of a goat or a cow. You were saved by the shedding of the precious Son of God. The eternal King. I mean, we did doctrine of God, right? This same God came and accomplished the work for you and was put to death on your behalf. Should we continue in sin? We know the answer, right? And so knowing what Christ has done for us, knowing that He is the blessed man. What do we do? How are we blessed? Well, first we take refuge in Him. We run to Him in faith. And then what do we do with our lives? We grow in knowledge of the Gospel. And then out of gratitude for what God has done, what do we do? We meditate on His Word. We avoid the wicked. And their ways. We go to God in prayer. We learn about Him. We grow in the fruit of the Spirit. We put to death the deeds of the flesh. But not because we, we you know, we don't get it twisted though. Even though we tend to want to do that, this is not why you're being saved. No, it, the work is done by Christ. And so to wrap it up, it's 9:50, and then I guess we can uh, go to questions. Or you might get out early. Um, I think that reading Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are an excellent way of using the, the three headed paradigm of guilt, grace, and gratitude. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. You look at Psalm 1 and you see what the person, what you must do, how you must live your life in order to be blessed. And if you're like me, questions start to arise Uh uh-oh, we've got a problem here. I cannot fulfill the works of the law. You see that throughout Scripture when you see these imperatives from the Apostle Paul or you read the law of God in Deuteronomy or Exodus. I deserve nothing but judgment. This is the guilt that we feel, that is the condemnation that the law brings. But it doesn't stop there. We keep reading and we see that God has given His Messiah and told us to take refuge in Him. He offers us grace and forgiveness. And we are justified and we find forgiveness by faith alone. By faith alone. And that should naturally lead to gratitude. The gratitude for what Christ has done in our lives. For the way that He empowers us by His Spirit to continually put sin to death in our lives. And when we fall into sin, we run back to Christ. And it says that there's not a smoldering wick that He will put out. There's not a bruised reed that He will break. Because you are in Christ. I'll close with this. I think this is a great picture of, uh, of what happens to us. It's in Zechariah. The prophet is having a vision, and he sees the high priest at the time, Joshua, which is interesting because Jesus means Joshua. This is before the coming of Christ. He's in a vision, and he showed me, the prophet saying me, he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of Yahweh. And Satan standing there at his right hand to accuse him. Does that happen? Do you ever feel the accusation? Just the, And it's true. You are someone who sins. Satan standing there at his right hand to accuse him. And Yahweh said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments, And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And then he goes on to clothe him in clean, pure garments. Is this not what Christ does for us? Even though Satan accuses. He rebukes Satan. And he says, No, this is mine. He is mine. As Jesus said in the high priestly prayer, He prays for you because God has given you to Christ. And so Christ prays for His own. You are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So the work has been done by Jesus. We run to Christ over and over again and take refuge in Him. And He empowers us to do his will falteringly, imperfectly, but with the knowledge because he's promised us that we will be uh glorified in the end, and that he won't lose you um we have five minutes. that was a lot uh, <laughs> yeah, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just like you stay out of the especially when you a Make sure you don't sit Right. Yeah. Yeah. Any um, Off the top of my head, I think a, a potentially hopeful way to think about that. Is when Paul is writing one of his letters and he's giving, um, he's talking about how they're not to associate with a brother or a sister in Christ who has done this sin openly and refused to repent. And then he, he, he sort of does a caveat and says, Now, I'm not talking about the world. I'm not saying you can't associate with them or be around them or interact with them because then you couldn't interact with anybody, right? So there is, there is certainly a recognition, now that the gospel has gone out to the nations and that we're not secluded in this little kingdom in Israel, that we are in the world, uh, but we are not to be of the world. So yes, that that is helpful to remember that Psalm one, Psalms 1 is written to you know, imagine if it was like Americans, and Americans were God's chosen people, and we didn't let anybody else in, you know, unless you unless you went through this really, really difficult process, like, you know, get circumcised, do all these things, and don't talk to anybody outside of America. Well, that's, that's one thing. It's something else when we are in the spiritual kingdom of God on earth, and we live among the world. And we are called to be salt and light. Is that partially a good answer? Okay. 3 minutes left Who's next? Sir. Those seeking to those seeking to live by law and those living by faith what does living mean? Does it mean escaping death and actually obtaining life? Or does it mean a pattern of how we conduct ourselves? How we live our lives? Or is it both? I suppose from a certain, um, there is an aspect from which it could be referring to both. But I do think that it would be the second of those. Yeah, to live your life according to the law. Moving through life, attempting to be justified and to gain life by doing these things according to the law. As opposed to living your life by faith. Okay, then I'm going to pray, and it's going to be right on time. Father, thank You for this, uh, this chance to come together and to speak about Your Word. I ask that as we meditate on Your Word, um, that You would continue to give us clarity about who You are and what You've done. The grace that we have in Christ. That God, when we face discouragement, uh, when we uh, find ourselves not measuring up to the standard that we know we need to meet, uh, that we would run to you in repentance and faith, God, knowing that Christ has come to do the work um, and that we are already raised with him and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So thank you for the work that you've done. Um, Thank You for promising to hold us and to preserve us until the end. And we look forward to that day. In Jesus' name, Amen.